vaccine once again no steve cuff but uh we're holding down the fort without him yeah my name is adam myros i am your guest host for this evening i am joined by a lean crew as we continue our exploration of the hong kong new wave by way of joy hawk uh still i feel like i'm butchering that name every time even though i'm pretty sure i'm not it just feels wrong coming off of my fat midwestern tongue uh i am joined this week by jake tropila how you doing jake doing just dandy adam how are you i'm doing uh quite all right quite all right pretty pretty laid back week and it's gonna be a laid back episode and uh, we watched some great shit for this one so yeah yeah a laid-back discussion on some films that maybe require a lot of mental gymnastics, or at least more than I was prepared to. Uh, yeah, some, some do. Some, some do. Yes. Some are just a good time. Exactly. And that's what we're hoping to provide as well. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, standing in the way of that good time, we have uh, Jack Eason with us as well. Always here to, to poop party. Uh, Jack, how's your week been? Uh, pretty quiet, too, honestly. Not much to report. Not that I think anyone would want to hear a report on my week, but thanks for asking, Adam. Appreciate it. <laughs> Speaking of a report, you know, I, I feel like it's my duty before we dive in uh, to touch base uh, on a couple subjects we've been known to revisit from time to time. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, my mea culpa corner here because, uh, you know, I, I was a little hard on uh, on those Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, congratulations to Sean and Steve, our resident Buck fans with their connections to the, the fine city of Drunkards, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I was, in fact, wrong. I said they had no chance because they couldn't hit free throws, but uh, I, I was wrong. They won. Congratulations. Uh, glad to see it. And uh, also featuring in this this mea culpa corner is uh, a pretty prominent reaction to this uh, Milwaukee championship from our old friend... Uh, the Buddhist sage Devin Farachi, uh, <laughs> who has weighed in on the Bucks championship by uh, by shaming uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, the the Bucks star and Finals MVP, for uh, ordering Chick Fil A and taking a, a social media video of it, which was apparently approved by by the employee. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess that Devin Faraci thinks that he has, he's, he's paid his price to see, you know, he is back in the sphere where he can give people moral advice. He, he has the high ground once again. Uh, and I, I'm just glad to see that, I guess. So I'm going to give a mea culpa in that, you know, when the Devin Faraci thing first hit, we were early days uh, of this sort of thing happening on Twitter, right? And I, I feel like, I probably in the first podcast where we mentioned it tried to try to be a little diplomatic about it, give him a little more benefit of the doubt than the man deserved. So, mea culpa. I'm sorry. Fuck you, Devin Faraci. Get off your high horse. Namaste, Chick Fil A. That's what I have to say. <laughs> I mean, if you're asking for an, the proper authority on the meaning of consent, who better to turn to than Devin Faraci? Yeah, just just a, a dirtbag thing. Get off of Twitter, man. I. I I don't know. I, I my go back 
to the hole you crawled out of. Right, yeah. My my initial reaction being like, oh, what's this guy supposed to do? You know, like it was it was just early days of the cancel culture <laughs> stuff, and I was like, I approached it wrong. I'll, I'll say that first and foremost. But I, you know. The guy has proven to be a, a grade A piece of shit who deserved zero benefit of any doubt and uh, just go the fuck away, man. No one wants to hear you on Twitter. Uh, you've lost the privilege. Uh, but let's let's move on from, from our old friend. Uh, we've spoken far too many words about Devin Faraci on this podcast over the years. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about something that I actually enjoy, uh, which is our first film of the week. Uh, this is called... Once Upon a Time in China. And, uh, yeah, I was saying before we started recording, uh, this this should have been our first episode because these uh, this film in particular is, like, uh, the easiest entry point. This is like, holy shit, I get it. I know exactly what Choi Hark is, and I love it. Uh, so, Jake, I'm going to go to you on this one because oh uh, why not? Uh, what, what, what is Once Upon a Time in China? Once Upon a Time in China is a film by director Choi Hawk, set in uh, China, sometime late 1800s, where to gather, where Hong Kong has just come under the rule of the British Empire, and we open with this grandiloquent lion dance overseen by the Qing Dynasty, and there's uh, Jet Li is on is in tow. He is the commander of the Black Flag Army, and he's witnessing the dance perform, but some gunfire breaks out from some neighboring French ships, uh, which causes confusion because the Chinese ship only let off some firecrackers. But anyways, it's a film dealing with a tumultuous period in which the people were under rule in China, and there is also uh, infighting occurring amongst the citizens of the city and the town, and Jet Li is trying to bring everyone together, I guess, in harmony by uh, some excellent sequences of Kung Fu, and uh, I don't really know where I'm going with the synopsis here, but uh, yeah, it is a fantabulous motion picture. Um, I love this goddamn movie. I think it's uh, top tier of what we've watched thus far. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think it's like one of the best Hong Kong films I've seen, and I, you know, I, it. it Obviously, you have to digest such things before you make sweeping judgments. But honestly, I, I think it would be up there for best films of the 1990s that I've seen. I, I think it's wow. fantastic. I, I found it to be pretty well pitch perfect all the way through. And the, just the choreography, everything about it is just gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, this is like, like Choi Hawk is a, f a filmmaker that we, even if you're not always like following what is going on, he makes everything look so damn good to watch. And this is no exception and probably the best um, selection of his talents are on display here because just the just the his formal dexterity and his his command over the staging and the choreography of each sequence is nothing short of uh, like perfect. I would even go to say this is this is an incredible accomplishment. Um, Jack, we understand you are maybe not as hot on this film as us. What do you think? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say this is a great movie. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> sure. we're talking like the scales of Choi Hawk. This is a really great movie. And this is, like you guys have said, this is kind of like the, a, a rare big budget 
kind of martial arts epic in a, that was not really in fashion in Hong Kong at the at the time a period epic of this scale and I think uh, this film the success of this film actually kind of kick-started that genre back up in, in Chinese cinema. Um, this is much more reminiscent, like kind of like those period martial arts epics used to come in like the 70s with the Shaw Brothers and, mm. and so on. And the 80s, things tended to get a little bit more leaner, leaned towards contemporary or just small-scale stories. This has huge sweeping sequences, period details, ships and markets and huge restaurants and, and street scenes. It's a, a wash with things. Um, and it's a really interesting film um, from the political standpoint. And this is something actually I was uh, talking last week with our guest last week, Sean Gilman. And I didn't get it on the on the actual podcast, but I was asking him a little bit about Choi Hawk's politics. Hmm. Um, because there, there's an interesting thing I have kind of was trying to reconcile in Choi's work, which is, as Sean said in our episode last week, you know, there's this strong anti-authoritarian kind of... Uh, energy going through Choi's work really through all of it and certainly as we we visit some of his much earlier stuff I think next week we're going to be looking at some of his very early stuff some of it is absolutely ferociously nihilistic and and anti-authoritarian and yet uh, Once Upon a Time in China is has this very strong nationalist kind of perspective to it it's a it's a film that's very much about kind of a China that could be or a unifying of Chinese character and so I was I was kind of just wondering how those things would reconcile this very strong anti-authoritarian bent with a film that has a very strong nationalist character and the the, the tr this is not just a trilogy in fact there's actually six films in this series uh, of varying and degrees of connection <laughs> and a television series wow. yeah varying degrees of connection to Choi Hawk himself he kind of produces through all of them directs some writes some etc um, but it, it's sort of uh, Sean Gilman described it to me that he, his kind of conception is that Choi's politics are his politics are not particularly clear. He's not like say Jackie Chan, who's like a card carrying member of the Communist Chinese or the Chinese Communist Party or whatever. Uh, he reckons Choi's nationalism is very much kind of a cultural nationalism rather than a political one. He does believe in a kind of a Chinese character and he certainly throughout his films he's so enamored with period settings and with fairy tales and folk tales of Chinese history that he's he's very clearly trying to elevate Chinese history and bring it back to the fore for you know for public consumption but it's not necessarily a political conscious which which is interesting because you know this film is this film is interesting because like Jake says is at a very tumultuous point in Chinese history um it's really at a point where Britain and America are at the gate of China and kind of trying to make their, their way in and kind of establish camps and negotiate treaties and preferential dealings with the Chinese and so on. Um, and yet this film is, I think, above all else about Chinese infighting. You know, much of this film, is, even though it re reconciles that the grand enemy is, a, is an American businessman, like the first hour and a half of this film is largely misunderstandings and kind of uh, Chinese people arguing among themselves and fighting among themselves for a variety of reasons uh, ranging from I say misunderstandings completely petty nonsense to very serious corruption and political elements you know people who are trying to sell the country out effectively yeah. so it, it's an interesting film on that level and I suppose if I'm less hot on this film 
than the subsequent films because I will say um, I think once I think the general consensus asking around is that Once Upon a Time in China 2 is considered the best film of the series and I would agree with that but that's you know, there, there's some vacillation there. Some people do really like this one. I, I just recently watched Once Upon a Time in China 3 and was actually really struck by it. It was the one I remembered as being much weaker and I actually also liked it more than this one. I think it's a really tremendous film, but they're all really good. I, You know, it's we're, we're talking a very strong set here. Um, I do think the politics of this one are just a little pat and maybe a little a little bit on the nose all the films are i guess to some varying degree quite didactic but this one feels a little bit kind of like in your face and also i suppose the other thing that maybe drags this one down a little bit to me is um the portrayal of wang fei hong who's uh, you know for anyone who is not aware the the central character is wang fei hong is essentially a chinese folk hero he's a real person there was a real wang fei hong who was a martial arts champion, but also a doctor of great repute. And um, he kind of just entered into the Chinese popular conscience to the point where um, there, there have been over a hundred films made about Wang Fei Hong. His, his uh, exploits have entered into the f- world of legend. You know, many, obviously most of those films are probably not stuff he actually did. This film, probably not stuff he actually did. But Wang Fei Hong has become this kind of like, national character I guess and um, I think what's interesting in the subsequent films compared to this one I think Jet Li does a really great job embodying the character here Um, but he sort of he's very perfect and Wang Fei Hong tends to be he's like he's a man of great wisdom and great patience and resolve and he's an impeccable martial artist so he can always you know, if if things come to blows, he'll never be the one to do that. But if it does, he'll resolve things appropriately and so forth. Um, he's really an interesting character because in the subsequent films, they carry on with the thing of him being so proper and decorous and, and, and uh, wise that he's kind of like representative of the Chinese national character. He's sort of the, the nobility and the... the kind of the potential of China, but increasingly in his personal wranglings, he's a bit of a buffoon. He's a bit like he's cause, because he's so caught up in, in the, the honor system and the codes of, of social decorum that he tends to trip up a little bit. And people like it's it's kind of a, a loving kind of a joke running through some of the films is that he has this romance with 13th Aunt played by Rosamund Kwan who's in this film mm-hmm. uh, that they're originally introduced and their romance develops and he's not great at it he's kind of like he's so busy you know kind of bringing the country forward that he's like screwing up this this nice lady who really loves him and it's very obvious to everyone but him um, so I, I guess it's just say I think this film is is an interesting example of that these films really do build very successfully on each other, and I guess just this one laying out the template is uh, maybe maybe not my favorite, but it's also probably a film that had to happen to to set things out. And like you guys have said, there's still got the like the the final action sequences is absolutely incredible. Um, I think I'm trying to remember who the action chore- the action choreographers on this one are. Uh, name escapes me. I think it's Lao Kar Wing, so it's Lao Kar Lung's brother, and I think also Yong Wu Ping's brother is also one of the action choreographers. So like you're, you know, one step away from like Hong Kong action royalty, and these guys are very well established in their own rights too. I mean, I I, I relay them to their more famous brothers just because that's kind of more likely that people here have heard of them but these guys are all absolute consummate professionals and the action sequences in this film are 
really tremendous. Um, and there's just so much going on. Um, it's just a, an incredible amount of detail and kind of elements of, of happenstance and intrigue and so on going forward in this film. So yeah, I, I'm, I would say I'm a little less on it, maybe a little less hung up on it than you guys are, a little less taken with it. But I still think this is a absolutely tremendous and a must for like Hong Kong film fans. You you can't go wrong here. Well, I'll be curious. Uh, we're not covering. Well, I'm not covering anything else. I have the next two weeks off. But uh, based on on your recommendation, I, I've decided to seek out the second and third films, and and we'll see. That might shape my reaction too, because you know if it, one surpasses the next it doesn't lessen the original that's for sure and, and to me this is it's an immense work it is it's a historical epic that at no point feels burdensome in any way it is a tremendously light and fun film despite its it's 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 obviously intense subject matter at times but yeah I, I it's just never drags it's fun all the way through it's just gorgeous everything about it is executed to perfection and it, it Wong Fei Hung is almost like ancillary in his own story like this movie sings because of the supporting characters these his entire crew and and that's something you don't see a lot in in these sorts of movies it's, I, I love the character of Iron Robe the rival who is, is killed in the end because he's not a villainous character. He just represents a, a different aspect of, of this sort of old world meeting new world where he's a man who's just trying to survive and make a name for himself. And he becomes more concerned with profit, I suppose you would say. He, he wants a reputation in order to profit because of need. And, that, and that's kind of the main thing that I focus on is that the difference between perhaps Iron Robe and Wong Fei Hung is less philosophical. Iron Robe is not portrayed as some sort of evil man. He's a, a man who is desperate as opposed to Wong Fei Hung seems to have everything he could possibly need and it becomes much easier for him to be the honorable master in that position of privilege. And this movie to me is as, as political as you want it to be. It, it does have very sort of simple and rudimentary politics at, at times, and I, I could see why that would be to its detriment. But I, I feel like one of the hallmarks of, of a movie called Once Upon a Time in Anything is that really what it's exploring is the end of something and, and how the, what's replacing it is affecting it. And whether it's better or worse, I don't think this movie necessarily takes a stance. I think it's just saying... There's a, a tremendous period of change and people are going to need to adapt and it's going to do a lot of damage to people who can't and just I, again I, I think that's a hallmark of many movies called once upon a time which uh, many exist and uh you know i tend to like the story format yeah it's, it's worth mentioning just as a, a really funny aside that in the philippines this movie was released as enter the new game of death God, Which is the most baffling uh, reappropriation of another franchise to sell this. Um, two, two franchises, even. There's Enter the Dragon and Game of Death. That's, it's all of them together. It's all the I Bruce think we Lee movies. We can all agree. It's, yeah, it's just like a Bruce Lee movie. Yeah. No, but yeah, like what Adam mentioned about the supporting characters. Uh, like even there's one character who works at the at the the school with. Uh, with Wang Fei Hung, his name in my subtitles he was called uh, Toothbrush So, but in some versions he's known as Bucktooth So, and he doesn't really have any 
formidable martial arts skills to speak of, but he's also a man who possesses, he, like, he's established as a buffoon, but he's also a man with great intellect, and we've learned that, oh, he went to San Francisco and he studied medicine, so, like, he's, he's an adept healer, and his, and he also speaks the language, so he's often, you know, trying to find common ground and communicating with them, um, so everyone, yeah, everyone gets their moment to shine, and, and, uh, I mean, who, who are we to, to do this podcast and not mention the best character of all, uh, Tiger. Porky. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's competition. Tiger, the right-hand man of uh, the evil American Jackson, who's usually just scowling in the background and wears a red petticoat before he gets into action. But uh, no, Porky is uh, great too. Yeah, this movie's got it all. White guy karate, fat guy karate, it's all there. <laughs> Yeah. It, it does have a very broad range. I, I think it is worth, uh, yeah, mentioning or, or kind of pointing out. It, it is an interesting thing within this this film is that it's it's kind of enshrining a kind of a way forward for China or kind of an idea of how China will have to adapt. But it's also not demonizing modern modernity or Western ideals. Like uh, Toothbrush So is a great example in that he stutters in Chinese he seems more comfortable speaking in English. He's dressed in Western attire for much of the film. And he's sort of, he's some, you know, somewhere in between the two cultures and he's treated, you know, he, he's not really, his, his treatment or his presentation as a buffoon early in the film is really because Chinese people are not giving him the kind of space he needs to, to shine. And he proves himself ultimately to be very adept and, and useful. Um, you know, and again, it kind of comes back to the idea, I think, that like this film is very much, it's a film that's very loving of the uh, kind of Chinese culture or character, but it's also Choi is kind of taking taking odds with it at points and kind of, you know, this isn't a film about how everything China does is great and uh, we do, there's nothing we can learn from, you know, America or Britain, etc. You know, no, it, it like you say, Adam, it's, it's a film about this, the tension of a kind of a change in history. And that's something that will follow through all of the series that kind of like, you know, industrialization is happening. We have, you know, steam engines, we have trains, we have these kind of new things that are just fundamentally reshaping society. And China will have to figure out how to do that. It's, you know, it's got 2000 years of its own culture, but that doesn't matter going forward. If it wants to have X number of years of, of future, it needs to, it needs to figure out something some kind of a balance yeah. between them. And this film is very much kind of dwelling in that tension down to down to the very end with uh, Iron Rope's final line before being decimated by gunfire where he says that martial arts is no match for guns. And it's just, again, that kind of like incredibly cynical line almost within for, for a Choi Hawk, a guy who makes so many martial arts films, it's this really kind of almost depressing thing to bring into the film that there's, you know, this incredible martial artist is just decimated by gunfire at the end, like all his skills and his training, etc. You know, things are changing, times are changing, new considerations have to be made. And the film is is mapping all that out uh, in a way that, like, I, I agree with you, Adam, it's like, for a period piece, this is an incredibly fleet-footed, alive kind of a film. There's so much energy behind it. Um, the The scenes are so well realized the street scenes just everything is just moving and flowing and it's just really it's tremendously easy film to watch despite being very dense with ideas yeah i'm not i'm not a person who really is in love with period film as a rule but 15 minutes into this i was already like oh this is 
this is going to be a masterpiece, isn't it? And it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't want to say too much about the ending, but just the last 30 minutes or so are just some of the most impressive filmmaking I've ever seen. It's, it's astonishing. Go check it out. Yeah, I, I feel like this movie, and maybe it's it's follow-ups, but this, this feels incredibly influential on how Chinese and Hong Kong cinema went on to interact with the West. Like, this feels like certainly a major touchstone for Ang Lee when he was sort of making Western Wuxia film. And uh, yeah, stuff like Hero and things of that nature that made their way over here. Uh, certainly feel derived from this to a great extent. Yeah, this this followed up for for Choi, um, kind of a series of films. I mean, just he didn't direct all of them, but like uh, Swordsman came soon after this, which was, uh, I think he may have part directed that, but also King Hu like was was involved in that project uh, and several other of these kind of like new um he did he he remade uh, Dragon Gate in the King Hu film. In fact, uh, I think the very next year after this. Uh, it's worth mentioning that uh, Choi Hawk was incredibly busy through the 90s. Like, he was churning out like three, four films a year on some occasions, and like they were big films. They were not like quick direct to video things. They were like Once Upon a Time China, big films. Um, and yeah, I, I think this was really kind of the start. This kicked off a kind of re energizing of the kind of epic Kung Fu Wuxia film. Um, which you know paid paid dividends and i think you're right adam i think really kind of paved the way to kind of like eke into western audiences certainly that that those kind of big historical epics that were also and, and i i couldn't really pick apart the politics on this perfectly but i think towed a very good line of being both true to hong kong cinema influences but also quite amenable to mainland chinese uh kind of politics as well uh, or at least you could hide a certain amount of subterfuge in them if you needed to. So I think it was it was a very successful genre of film to be good at. Um, and yeah, it, it's really, you know, this this is well worth checking out and it, it will lead you in many directions. If nothing else, there's five more of these. <laughs> yeah, I certainly want to see the sequels now that we've mentioned it. Yeah, I've got. I don't know that I'll go so far as six, but uh, at, <laughs> at least the the original trilogy that is uh, the whole OG cast and crew, seemingly uh, those I am very interested to explore and may yeah. may do so <laughs> starting later this evening. Uh let's move on though. You know, we we have three other films to cover, and uh, the next one uh, is 1994's The Lovers, which. I think I I don't know about Jake, but I'm I'm gonna be on a similar refrain here, where I, I'm gonna be uh, trying to uplift Jack's opinion of the film. Because apparently, he was pretty cold on it, but I thought it's quite touching. Uh, Jack, even though you you might not be that into the lovers, why don't you tell the people what it is? Sure. So, uh, the lovers is uh, reminiscent of Green Snake in that it is another retelling of one of the four core. Uh, legends of Chinese folklore, uh, in this case, the butterfly lovers, and it's it's, it's often likened to being uh, China's Romeo and Juliet story, except that it's like a thousand years older than Romeo and Juliet. So whatever. But um, 
essentially a story about a girl who is sent away to college uh, to study. Um, it's a boys only college, so she she dresses as a boy. Her her mother did this previously, uh, so she does this. And um, when she's there, she meets a guy who thinks she's a guy, and they become fast friends. And it becomes a little bit more than a friendship. Uh, and she is very interested in him and he's quite interested in her but also a bit confused because he doesn't think he's gay but he really can't for some reason he can't tell that she's a woman uh, which in these movies is kind of a a recurring theme that you know if 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 a woman puts on a man's hat it doesn't matter how feminine she looks everyone's like that's a man yeah this one doesn't really make much effort on that front <laughs> No, not, not really at all. Yeah, it's very, very apparent. But anyhow, they, they they develop a romance eventually. Eventually does learn that she is a woman and finds out it's like, hooray, I'm I'm this what I'm feeling is okay. Um but she ends up being promised to another, uh, as can happen to to basically uh, she's promised a marriage for a political alliance. There's some nothing she can do about it, so she can't marry the the man she loves, and he dies in sadness. I'm going to spoil the whole ending because it's an old folktale tragedy. So frankly, this is like a matter of public record. He dies in grand <laughs> tragic circumstances from basically he he broken heart. He falls ill and he dies. She is uh, on her way to her wedding. And on the way to, to her wedding, she is going to pass his grave and a huge storm rips up that uh, kind of means that she can't she can't get past his grave. So she goes to pay her respects one last time and she she asks to be with him. And I won't spoil the exact uh, elements of it, but there's a grand, beautiful, beautiful conclusion to the whole thing. And it's it's bittersweet and so on but um th this is uh, very much choi in a very classical mode and um, much more than green snake which, which admittedly is kind of a, a little bit of an inversion of the legend of white snake which is kind of what it's it's really retelling but it refocuses on the the brasher more animalistic green snake this feels much more traditional to me in on all counts uh, in how it's presented how it's made very beautiful film it's very frustrating to me that this film is, you can't find it in good quality. I certainly couldn't anywhere. It's like an, an ancient DVD sourced rip, you know, maybe even VCD. I'm not entirely certain, but like it, it doesn't look great. And you could see that the film clearly is meant to look great. It's a very lush, beautiful kind of a film. Um, yeah, in terms of my own reactions to it, I will say I was a little cold on it. I didn't particularly buy into the initial stage of the romance, but I was completely won over by the conclusion. The, the, the last 20 minutes or so of this movie is absolutely incredible. So I, I'm kind of like in between on this one a little bit, I suppose. See, Jack, you got to frame these summaries in a way that our audience can understand. Basically, this movie is... Why? Uh, it's, it's just one of the guys without the gratuitous nudity. That's what we're looking at. <laughs> I was going to say I was gonna say Mulan, but I don't know if that's problematic or anything. I've never even seen Mulan, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, I know that there's Eddie Murphy as a dragon or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if you want to know, the great thing about Mulan is that uh, Disney made a huge to-do about remaking a live-action version of it with Chinese people. But there's like a whole Chinese movie of Mulan made in China years ago. And there's just Chinese people everywhere in it. So well done, Disney. You're, you're really representing everyone. 
Well, can I point out, I'll, uh, Jake, I'm going to kick to you. I just have a quick point about his use of like calligraphy and parchment in both of these movies we've discussed. It's just mm, so yes. fucking staggering. Like that letter just covered in blood is just the most potent image. Yeah. So uh, I, my reaction to the lovers, uh, I'm, I'm siding with Adam here. Uh, I think this is a wonderful film. Um, the ending is impressive, like Jack says, but I was just so smitten by the, the charming two leads that uh, I was really thoroughly enjoying it all the way through to that final ending, which makes it even so much better. And it packs such a wallop if you're if you're one who's really into this story. But yeah, the two the the, the film lives and dies on its two act main actors, and they're both just such wonderful charismatic people with with great faces and i yeah i i I loved the lovers it's uh it's it's great which is hard to imagine because like the male lead nikki Wu is uh is like a a boy band alumnus in fact he was still in a boy band when he was in this film yeah Um, and that's what he primarily would be known for um and i just it 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 is a, a pretty huge role to hand just so I, I just I'm not sure I would see that happening over here. Like some music people do transfer into movies, but they're rarely given a role with this kind of ha- like, you know, Justin Timberlake never got cast as Hamlet. Like that didn't really happen, you know. Well, I feel like the tone that he gets away with is is more like a rom com tone. Like you would cast sure yeah Timberlake in a role where he could have big chemistry with someone what Kunis or something i don't yeah fuck it. Ah. that's exactly the film they were in yes yeah there you go so uh, but that is the thing for me is is Wu and uh charlie young have like just electric chemistry and we'll see that carry through to another film we're going to discuss but mm. but that is just it makes everything light up the first hour of this movie you're, you know it's going to go in a tragic direction because, of course, it is. That's just the format of this sort of film. But you don't want it to. You're like, oh, couldn't this just be like, let's just have another half hour of this because it's, it's so nice. It's it's gorgeously shot and edited. And, yeah. And it, their chemistry is just so nice to spend time with. I just – I was just loving it. <laughs> yeah. I the my One of my favorite little moments is just the scene where she's heading to class and sees him ringing the bell – to ring all the students and they start doing like this little trait of goofy faces. It's just, that was just like so fun and endearing. And I agree. I would have like, just like give me 30 more minutes of just the happiness. And they're like, let's not have any conflict. Let's just keep them together. And they find out, Oh, Hey, you're a woman. Okay, great. I love you. And then the end, I wish movies like that existed where they just didn't have, they felt no, <laughs> no need to conflict. add any, any conflict. <laughs> <at all. laughs> that, that's not how you get enshrined in history. Those stories, <laughs> they don't, they don't last. But no, I think Adam, that's that is a really good point about how considering this, and I, I guess links as well to Green Snake to some degree is that these are very ancient legends. But Choi shoots them. I I I am hesitant to invoke Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, but the concept mm. of investing them with a really kind of youthful verve uh, of like a very sprightly energy they don't they're not weighed down by their history at all uh, and that that is really interesting i think and i think is kind of a fundamental point of how Choi works he's he works in historical modes a lot uh, but he is not 
imprisoned by them or intimidated by them he is he can make films that feel utterly modern while set in like i think this is probably set in like the third century ad or so like it's it's (laughs) a long time ago Uh, and that that is really notable and it does create a very interesting energy to the to the film because Mm -hmm. i like you say i mean um the two lead actors also are just they feel very contemporary to the time um you know they they don't they they don't look like you would expect people to look from that era uh they they honestly look almost like you know they put the costumes on but they were like plucked straight out of like a 90s fashion magazine um which both of them i'm sure were in many of around this time so it's it's kind of an interesting kind of energy to the film there there is certainly a very kind of youthful exuberance to it within a tragic fairy tale yeah, if you were to tell me these two like got married after this film, I'd be like, yeah, sure, that's that that makes perfect sense to me. I hope they did. I, I buy that. Yeah, but um, and just to, I mean, I guess since since Jack's already spoiled the ending, um, the I I don't know what other word to say. I, I don't want to say that like this is everything kind of feels ordinary, but before the final twenty minutes, but just Troy Hark is a master of of great style, and he just. He just totally goes for broke during the final sequence. And it's like it's most things that you would see in a typical Choi Hawk film, but it's just concentrated to the, the conclusion of this movie. But yeah, just her being swallowed up in the, the grave and like just the sky turns like beet red. And it, it's it's just such a swirling, magical, powerful sequence. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, this is such a such a terrific effort. I yeah. I, like once again, I love the lovers. It's interesting how um, because the next film we're going to talk about kind of moves into a new generation for Choi or, or some new modes for Choi. This is like you say, Jake. It uses a tremendous amount of very practical elements. There's a lot of like gels being used on the camera to create kind of planes of color. A lot mm. of quick editing and obviously just practical effects for for everything in between. There's there's nothing CG or or otherwise within this um and it's it's interesting also the scaling that Choi is capable of um because this is by no means i'm sure the most logistically difficult of his films because he'd already made several once upon a time in china's at this point and like once upon a time in china 3 has like these just enormous lion dance sequences with like literally hundreds of people in costumes dancing or fighting and it's like just dizzying spectacle uh, this is much simpler than that but Choi is able to use these ingredients to keep a very traditional sense to everything and then once it opens up into the more fantastical ending the way it scales up is extremely effective I can say if I was not particularly won over by the first half of this movie the conclusion still absolutely flattened me which is almost it, it, almost more impressive in a way to me um, that I was not particularly invested and yet still by the end he had completely won me over which you think is even more difficult than if I'd just been along all the way uh, I was you know found myself surprised by how how much the tragedy of the conclusion really was was uh, impacted upon me mm-hmm. um, so yeah and, and then he would you know and I would say this is kind of a traditional filmmaking which in his next film that we're going to discuss uh, kind of gets augmented with a few new tricks yeah i i will say similarly jack i i almost i come at it from a different reaction but but in a similar way that i i wanted to hate the ending like i it's an ending you can see coming you know exactly how this movie i mean 
not sure, not yeah. necessarily the fantastical elements, but you know, from almost moment one, you're like, oh, this <laughs> this movie is headed this direction. It's going to be this sort of Romeo and Juliet type thing. It's a doomed romance movie. And then when you invest yourself in this romance, you're really enjoying these characters. I'm primed to be like, I don't fucking want to see these people end in misery. Why? <laughs> Why do I want to see this? So I'm I'm going. I'm not even gonna give this ending a chance. But it's still, it hits. <laughs> it's got a big punch. That it does. Yeah. Uh. Well, let's move on from the lovers. Uh. To uh, a little film called The Chinese Feast, which. Uh, if you were to like read a synopsis, you might you might think this was a Johnny Toe film, but uh, it's definitely not a Johnny Toe film. Um, I'm gonna go with Jake on this one. Jake, I, sure. I will I will save you the headache of doing the last film by uh, by throwing it to you for the Chinese feast. What what is this film? I, well, I think our last film will need to be a group effort, but uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, the Chinese Feast, uh, this film opens with uh, two chefs are in a, uh, a competition to cook the finest meal. Um, there's Chef uh, Master Kit and uh, Master Lung. Uh, Master Kit's wife is away having a baby while this is going on, and he decides to abandon the competition so that he can be with his wife. But uh, I, I think, uh, does she lose the child? Or does I think she it is leave? implied, yes. Yeah. It's implied, yeah. She, he's too late to save her, and it also ruins her mar- their marriage. So he becomes a just a walking destitute, a shell of a former man. Um, but meanwhile, this uh, restaurant uh, comes up. It's an organization called the. Uh, I wrote it down somewhere. That's all right. I don't have it. Anyways, there's this other restaurant that comes about, and they are in competition with another rival restaurant gang to. I guess to prepare the Manchu Han Imperial Feast, which is a 108 dish uh, eating ceremony. And they need to call upon the original chef, Master Kit, so that they can succeed. And it's a film that of one I was reminded of recently that just came out called Pig. I won't explain why, but again, you should see go see Pig with Nicolas Cage if you've uh, if it's available. But uh, yeah, this is a film that's a testament to the, the creative process, to following your dreams, uh, and it's also got some very sumptuous cooking on screen. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Adam, what did you think? You know, I, I, I would disagree with some aspects of that, mostly the sumptuous cooking bit, because that's kind of what struck me about this, is that it didn't... Like I said, I, by description, it feels so much like something Toe would do, because Toe... Mm-hmm. really is interested in processes and cooking is one of those processes that he manages to really linger on and depict in this sort of sensual way almost. And yeah, I, that, that does not seem to be an interest of, of Choi Hark nearly so much. Uh, this movie, uh, it involves triads, it involves cooking and it, and in theory, it, it just sounds like a completely different film. If you're only coming at, Hong Kong from that sort of Wu Toe end of things, but this is a very different animal. It, it, like to me, the cooking felt mostly ridiculous. How how disinterested he was in the process. It would just be like someone putting a knife up to something and cutting it like really roughly, and all of a sudden it would be this. It would just kind of like smash cut to like this ornate fucking thing, and mm-hmm. I, yeah, it is. 
that's not even a criticism. It's just that this movie plays out like uh, the world's most ridiculous episode of Iron Chef or something, <laughs> rather than the sort of food porn thing you might expect. It's it's just a, a strange, strange movie to me. But I had a lot of fun with it. I think that it, it's it's quite a fun film. It's just uh, I don't know. It's certainly not what I expected. It. I can't quite get a bead on it. <laughs> I suppose it's it's probably worth noting this was a this was a New Year film, um, which is kind of a tradition in the Chinese market for the Lunar New Year uh, that they release these like very upbeat films that kind of you know are, are crowd pleasers because everyone goes to the cinema. You know, it's it's a huge week on the box office, and it, it kind of makes sense within that because it's it's a very raucous comedy that's kind of about the grand tradition of Chinese cuisine. But also, like you say, Adam, it's also kind of like plays up the the cuisine to comical effect. Yeah. Like this is, I mean, they're they're boiling polar bear paws <laughs> and like it's insane the stuff they're doing. But it is prior to that. I mean, it's a ver- it's just a really good natured comedy. Um, and I suppose ultimately, it's kind of it's it's maybe less in, in, interested in the process of creating food as it is about the community yes. that builds around 100%. food. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, I guess that's kind of the 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 setup for this. And I I do say, and I, it's not a spoiler at the end, but there's this wonderful cut at the conclusion of the film where it cuts to for the end credits, cuts to kind of a, a big banquet, uh, kind of everyone toasting, and it's actually it's not the not the people in the film, it's actually the cast and crew, and it kind of marries the the two together, and I think really it does become this kind of celebration of the community of of food and cuisine. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's just a really enjoyable film. I I don't know if I could find anything to say like this is a really profound film per se. I think again it, it toys with some of Choi's sort of you know regular interests of Chinese identity um, in terms of like the idea of this very you know ornate kind of Chinese meal. It, it's worth noting like the, the the meal that they're trying to create has a specific history of trying to unite the uh, King and Han tribes of china or or whatever sects i don't know what would be the correct term for that you know but this was when this this incredible lavish feast was proposed was to unite those two to unite the chinese kingdom and so you know there's elements throughout and of course that it will unite people in the present as well and it's bringing uh something for the past into into contemporary things you know this feels very much like a kind of a choy idea but really most of this is just a very ridiculous comedy i mean there's an enormous amount of slapstick there's crazy stuff happening in this there's wrestling fish there's uh, people just falling over all the time it's um yeah it's a really fun movie honestly it's, and it's colorful and just yeah a yeah, great time honestly i mean it has it, it one of maybe the funniest things in it is it has this is not a martial arts movie uh, and it's even it's kind of strange because like it it um it stars vincent Zhao. shows up in this i think it, this is the first time i've ever seen him he's the star by the way of like um he's the male lead in green snake he's the lead in the blade he uh, plays wong fei hong in two of the once upon a time in china films uh, he's a martial artist he's a wushu champion i would always know him as a martial artist he's in this movie in a completely non-martial arts 
orientation. It's kind of weird. He doesn't do anything. But there is still somehow in this movie that has no martial arts, a kind of martial arts training sequence, almost like a spoof of those insane training sequences you'd see in like Drunken Master. But it's basically them trying to revitalize the senses of the alcoholic chef by like like pairing off and re-enervating his taste buds and getting his sense of smell working again through insane methods. And it's just a really, like that, just a really fun movie. It's It's just kind of everything you kind of want to just sit down for a day and and kind of like just just soak it all up yeah i i will take it back there is one piece of of food that i would describe the the presentation and preparation perhaps although it's not lingered on as as somewhat sumptuous and really meant to be to evoke something Uh, and that is the food that his wife prepares for him, uh, the the fallen master chef mm. uh, at their home. It's a very simple meal. And I, that's obviously a very intentional choice. Uh, so it's not that I think that it wouldn't be in Choi Hark's wheelhouse to, to like portray things in a certain way. That's just not his intent here at all. What he is doing is kind of highlighting the absurdity of, of this sort of fine dining and I, I mean, at every turn, when they're doing this simple, like, this syndicate of chefs or what the fuck ever shows up at this restaurant, and they have to prepare, like, uh, stir-fried beef, and uh, the uh, the chef owner decides to prepare sweet and sour pork, and what he presents is, like, encased in ice cubes for some reason. Like, at no point does the food... Gushes out. Yeah, at no point does the food <laughs> seem especially edible that these masters are fucking producing. I, w- I would try the sw- the stir-fry beef. The little... The, it, the beef wrapped up in the little noodles, that looked good. The ice cube, sweet and sour pork, not so much. <laughs> you're, not, you're not interested in sweet and sour gushers? No, <laughs> I'm not, not sure I would, I would even try. The bear claw made me consider vegetarianism, I, I gotta say. I was that, not, that was pretty pretty. Oh, I thought the most disgusting was the, uh, the soup-stuffed fish. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was... <laughs> Yeah, that was a great joke because the master chef prepares that and then it's like all the chefs pile in to try it and and the the expectation is supposed to be that it's going to be delicious and they're all like, you know, expecting it to be delicious and it isn't because his senses are not fully honed yet. But like every shot of it up until that is like, it looks disgusting. (laughs) It's like a fish with green goop. And it was apparently, that's apparently how it's meant to look. They're like, oh, the presentation, it looks perfect. It looks so delicious, but it tastes off. Yeah. I'm like, it does not look. Del- it looks like snot-filled <laughs> fucking trout. If yeah, soup, soup stuffed fish. That's. I mean, it looked exactly what that would look like <laughs> a fish on a plate with soup splooging out of it. But no, I was. I would never try. That. That was the worst. I gotta say, you're right. The 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 one kind of anti-authoritarian element to this, which I also enjoyed, and I think speaks like Adam to your point about how part of this, I think, is a send up of the idea of you know focusing too much on technical and fancy and fine dining ideals. Is uh, the the conclusion of the film is basically a cooking competition to create this this Chinese feast. And there's three judges who mark each, who like score each uh, piece, kind of presaging, honestly, about 80% of reality TV in the 2000s and onwards of just people just basically putting food on a plate and having a bunch of people shout at them. Mm -hmm. But um, 
it's really it is really funny because there's one course and I won't spoil anything but there's one course and the judges rate it one way and then it turns out they don't know anything that they've been completely fooled and it just completely pulls the rug out from under the whole concept that the judges even know anything in this contest um, and it seems very choy at that point that it's just very much like you know even the experts are, are winging it to some degree here. So yeah, it's it's. I think this is just a really fun light entry. I, I'm not sure I categorize this as like your quintessential Choi Hawk film, but um, you you could do a lot worse with your time. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I mean, Iron Chef has to predate this. I'd assume this is playing off of that to an extent. Possibly so with Iron Chef. Yeah, I'm thinking more of like you know the Master oh, yeah. Chef horse shit down the line. The American ruination of the Iron Chef conceit <laughs> for like <laughs> pounding it into the ground for two decades. Yes, uh, yep. sure. Iron, Iron Chef did premiere in October 10th, 1993. Yeah. So yes, okay. This is a res- could be seen as a response to that. I just remember there's sort of elephant trunk in this movie too. That's yeah, insane. yeah, and and again, <laughs> I, not to fully throw out the the ending there, but it is just. The scene that that uh, comes directly before that sort of final round rug pull, where it's just like him sharpening this cleaver, and then they're going on and on about murdering this fucking monkey, and I'm like, what an odd choice to put this scene in. And there's this cut to this monkey just looking forlornly at them. And it fades to black, and I'm like, why is this in here? How do they, they have to serve monkey brains, but it's a crime to kill a monkey, and they have to, well, how, what do we do? Do we do the, do we serve the monkey brains? Dude, there's, there's a weird ambiguity, I think, or ambivalence in the film towards, like, it feels to me there's a certain ambivalence in the film about the exotic ingredients. Like, I think this film definitely might piss off vegetarians, um, just in that it's not like it, it, the, the whole thing seems to be they're, they're unashamedly not just eating animals but eating rare and exotic animals uh, and th- that's not really a point of narrative up until the monkey because apparently that is a specific law but like elephant trunk <laughs> uh, shark fin i know shark fin is very popular yeah. but sharks are also becoming endangered because it's very popular what the fuck does it's that guy say like balance. rips a weird string off the shark fin and goes like it increases virility or something i'm like what the <laughs> yeah fuck? shark fin apparently because it's dry i guess it's real sinewy and stuff so yeah he just like sh- pulls off a little strand to chew on or it, whatever that's ridiculous <laughs> the whole movie is ridiculous is i mean uh, and we haven't even mentioned i mean like the the one of the lead actors in this is like the great leslie chung who's like always a pleasure to to kind of have on screen there's some really great work between him and i think anita yun as his uh ostensible love interest who's starts off as it's like uh, kind of like a manic pixie dream girl except that she's just kind of shitty uh, she's just manic um and then kind of tones it down as they kind of like gain kind of understanding with each other i will say maybe i missed some of the fineries of their relationship because i watched this movie on a hong kong blu-ray which had english subtitles but the english subtitles are not by people who spoke english so i was like there were certain times when they had like discussions and it was just like you bring me the question and they're like, what? I, that's not something anyone would say. And, it, and that seemed to be an answer to a question rather than the actual question. So I was sort of, I don't, I, for all I know, there could be entire subplots in this movie that I didn't even know, but I didn't care because it was colorful and it moved very quickly. Yeah, it's not, it's not the most plot driven movie on earth. I'll say that. You're probably quite <laughs> all right. Basically, uh, you know, they, they all form sort of a surrogate family and yay. And uh, food is ridiculous. And 
that's that. But no, that that's not to be dismissive. I just found it interesting how much it sort of paralleled in paper thin narrative, like what we what I had come to expect from Toe, and how it is nothing like in execution. It doesn't even vaguely resemble anything that Toe would have done with this material. And yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was interesting to me. I, anyone else have uh, Chinese feast thoughts, or shall we move on to our last film? I, I mean, we we may have sound like we're kind of hitting it hard with just some of the food, but they, I, I, it's still fun. Go check it out. It's, oh no, all of these movies are good. I, yeah, I, there was maybe I had a couple reservations last week. Mostly just with butterfly murders because it's it's rough and it's presented yeah. in a un, unrestored format that is rough, and uh, it's probably a pretty cool movie if you could see it ideally, but as it exists. It's pretty rough, but nothing here. I, everything this week, yeah, just go ahead and watch it. But uh, saying that, if you want to get a little uh, confused, uh, you, you could probably watch our next one first. Just jump right into the deep end, I guess, because uh, uh, we're talking about 1995's Love in the Time of Twilight, and this this is a movie that's it's it's not going to make a lot of sense. You can't fight with it narratively the whole way or you'll go insane. But uh, let's let's see if Jack can nail it down. Oh, well, I mean, Love in, Love in the Time of Twilight is clearly, it's a, a touching drama about the rollout of electricity to rural China <laughs> in the 1920s. Um, this, this movie is, frankly, I know it's, you could always go, oh, this movie's crazy. This movie actually is kind of crazy. It's it's. Basically, kind uh, of, kind, kind, yeah. I mean, eventually, like it's a love story, and it's it's our two the butterfly lovers reunite. So we have Nikki Wu and Charlie Young again playing the the two our two star-crossed lovers. Uh, but then, it, and set in the nineteen twenties, uh, you know, it's a period romance piece. It it actually recycles some elements from uh, Shanghai blues and maybe a little bit Peking opera blues as well. Earlier uh, Choi Hawk films, you know, there there's some strands that run through this film that are, you would recognize if you've seen his earlier work. Um, but then, but there's some other stuff that you wouldn't particularly recognize because in the end this becomes kind of like Back to the Future. Uh, there's time travel. You know, ghosts. here's what I'll say. This is my Western analog, not Back to the Future. This movie is Ghost. If it was The Mask with uh, like one one hundredth <laughs> of the CGI budget. <laughs> <laughs> That that's kind of yeah that that's kind of where we're at. It is essentially to put it to to kind of put some shape on it. These two young people meet each other, a man and woman. They hate each other. They cannot stand each other. They continually prank each other because they keep running into each other at at certain times. Um, and then he gets the the man gets roped into a bank robbery by accident. He becomes an accomplice unwittingly by carrying guns into the bank that he didn't realize he was carrying in as an employee. And then the people who used him for that kill him. They murder him because they don't need him anymore. And he's all you know. Why wouldn't you? Uh, but he becomes a ghost, and he comes back, and he there, there's kind of an interrelation between the ghost realm and the, the physical realm that he is potentially able to travel he can travel through time and so he has to go back to this girl who hates him uh, and basically have her work with him in the physical realm to try and write and correct the situation but ultimately for this plan to work and this plan is insanely complicated the the amount of complications and rules in this thing would make christopher nolan fucking walk away um but 
ultimately what it relies on is that they must fall in love. There's like a two-week window where all of this has to happen and they, they revisit mm-hmm. the two weeks at different points throughout. Uh, there's a lot of like back and forth on the timeline here. But ultimately it comes down to that they, they need to they need to sort out their differences and ultimately they'll fall in love and we know they will but there's I guess the underlying dramatic element of this is idea of that these two people can kind of put aside their own petty grievances and kind of understand where the other one is coming from and forge a real relationship but this is uh, I mentioned uh, The Butterfly Lovers being a very traditional film in terms of its film grammar practical effects this has a 1995 CG but like the not like Hollywood budget somewhere in between that um, and it doesn't, it doesn't bother me but it's very you know it's it's very much limited in what it can do technically and it, I think a lot of people would find that disturbing at some points it's kind of like you know you're watching Spawn in 97 which really overstepped the marks on what CG was capable of this isn't quite that bad but it's kind of like people's arms balloon and move around there there's like early music video effects just stuff you would you know you kind of remember being like a big deal in the early 90s that people were like whoa can you like look what they can do with computers now and it all looked kind of ropey and weird but it was sort of its own aesthetic um, but yeah, this film just is, again, I really enjoyed it. I at no point was bored. I was at many points unsure of what was happening, but uh, it didn't really bother me on the whole. You can kind of, you know, as long as you focus on the long view, the, the individual details along the way become less important. Yeah, if I had one main criticism of this film, uh, which is a film I quite enjoy, uh, I feel like... They did a pretty terrible job of establishing when these characters start to, like, fall in love. You never really get a sense for that at all because so much else is fucking happening. Yeah, yeah, their love story is a little bit underplayed, I think. That's probably the... the there's Like I said, there's so many rules that... Uh, enormous amounts of stuff about electricity and the electricity kind of broaches the spiritual world and the, the, the physical world. But then they have stuff like you can kill ghosts by breaking the electrical object they last traveled through and so on and switching on and off electrical items can move ghosts in and out of the two realms it becomes incredibly confusing at a certain point yeah so, I, I think it gets away with it to uh, to a degree it does you, you have to just kind of like sit back and just kind of go like okay let's just see what happens next i think uh it gets a lot of mileage out of the fact that the uh, Probably not just us due to this uh, lineup, but probably a lot of the existing audience had kind of a been pre-invested in, in Nikki Wu and Charlie Young, uh, and and that kind of infused some some initial life into that relationship without the film having to do the work, which is uh, yeah handy, I guess, when you want to jam in every plot element imaginable. But yeah, this is a movie where you're you're you don't really need a villain; you could just kind of be trying to solve this problem for the entire movie that's the conflict let's undo getting this together to solve yeah the problem. could be the villain yeah but then all of a sudden there's a villain in like the third act who just shows up and has like a disfigured face and just chased them all over they, the they, i mean they have villains earlier in the film too there's the the woman who works with who the the ultimately the main villain sure, I mean, who sure. betrays them there, there's like several layers of like betrayal and backstabbing and murder well that that makes sense that's part of the problem right yeah. that's the setup the, these villains in the past that they've got to work around but that the introducing a villain into the time travel and it just gets <laughs> to be a bit fucking much 
There's a loss. Yeah. So uh, this film got, like it drove me crazy, um, but I I came around to it. it like the like I, I don't know the first like the first this is what hundred minutes or so like the first thirty five forty minutes I was almost on the verge of like pulling my hair out. I'm like, what is going on? Why are there so many vomit jokes? Why, who keeps like this guy keeps throwing up on people? But like then yeah, then the the murder happens and then we go back in time for the first time and then like I started to really like where the film was going and everything that you start to see afterwards you kind of you kind of recontextualizes everything that you watched prior to it because it's setting up that there were characters and hidden cloaks that were like present in scenes before. Uh, this is a film I think I would really benefit. I, I wish I had watched twice before we discussed um, because, yeah, there is a lot of ropey elements and like the mid 90 CG included. But um, it's it's still just like you have to just submit, just give into the fun. And then it's it becomes we I mean, we've thrown out a few films of what it reminds me of. But the, the playful nature of it reminds me of uh, mostly of Celine and Julie Go Boating, where two figures are basically trying to alter something horrible from happening but it's all told in a very playful manner but uh yeah it's uh it's a film that you could struggle with it if you are not watching it with the right mindset but if you kind of just i guess vibe with it would be the best way um then yeah it's a it's a blast it's it's just uh, an insane amount of fun yeah you can't watch it like a true like if you were thinking you're gonna get some tight time travel plot then yeah just watch something else probably <laughs> you just gotta let go no, yeah, this, this movie is like more complicated than primer but in nowhere near as carefully planned in terms of uh, cause and effect I do, I do like the the uh, alliance to Celine and Julie. It's kind of like Celine and Julie go boating on fast forward. It's just like this, yeah. everything's happening much more quickly. Well, Celine and Julie goes boating is three hours long. That it's just fast forwarded to be a hundred minutes long. That's this movie. <laughs> yes. It's an incredible feat of direction. What, one thing I will say, what I think is really, really funny, um, and one reason why I love Hong Kong cinema generally, uh, is that this movie won, I believe, uh, Eric Cott, who played Little Shrimp. If I'm right, Little Shrimp is a guy who Robinson. ends up chronically puking. Yeah, he's yeah. chronically puking for most of the film. Um, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor <laughs> for this role. <laughs> like, I just could not imagine a, an, an Oscar nomination for someone who literally a running gag is that he just is spewing his guts up for most of the movie. Um, yeah, incredible that that would happen. That's and so fun. Uh, it should happen more places. What, what an insane joke that that would maybe play at a different time and place to, than here and now in, in modern America. Because it's just the, the genesis of the puking joke is that we are led as an audience to believe that he is vomiting because he has date raped his close friend, and instead. Uh, I guess the the quote unquote punchline is that he when when they travel back in time to the incident, it turns out he was in fact projectile vomiting everywhere because she had a projectile vomited into his mouth several times <laughs> during the course of the evening. I'm like, well, this is quite the fucking scripted joke we got going on. <laughs> this, is, this is just that's what happens, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's just a really. And again, I like. I don't know how much you would want to read into this film, but I think it is interesting. Again, it's a 1920s period setting. Um, electricity plays a key role. So there, there are kind of these elements floating around in the film about kind of 
uh, and and also um, our Charlie Young's character is in a Peking Opera House again. That that's where her her father runs one. So she's almost a repeat of Salier's character in um in Peking Opera Blues, sort of. Um, so the, again, these elements are repeating and reordered to kind of create like it, it's kind of again a China modernizing and in some degree of tumult, but this time the forebear the the story in the foreground of it is a very kind of zany romance tale so it it's again kind of just an unusual film in joy's repertoire and it, i guess is telling this film so far as i'm aware i don't know if it's ever been released in the west uh, like this is the polar opposite when we think of like hong kong cinema i think from like once upon a time in china these films that like western audiences would immediately understand it's like that's i that's the kind of movie china makes this is the kind of movie that gets made a lot in hong kong too it just doesn't leave hong kong so much uh, so it's kind of interesting to peek in on it and kind of try and keep up with it i'd imagine it's it's similar to our exports right it's not like it, it- uh, that's the appeal of making the blockbuster for the big studios is that those play worldwide. I don't think sure. most of our comedies have great legs. Well, yeah, I'm, but like our, you know, Hong Kong martial arts movies of varying degrees of budget and, and uh, kind of capability are, they're an easy sell and thrillers. I mean, like if you, if you follow the Western market, uh, the entirety of Asia pretty much just makes uh, incredibly gory thrillers. That's pretty much all they make. Uh, they actually do make other stuff like this, uh, which maybe even is worse because it does feature extensive amounts of vomiting, which, you know, depending on your own predilections, might be more of a turnoff than big gouts of blood flowing everywhere. Uh, let us not speak ill of the incredibly gory thrillers, though, because those are pretty good, too. Oh, yeah, some, <laughs> they're, they're good at those, for sure. <laughs> uh, always happy to see those. Well, I, I think that probably about wraps up our discussion on these four. Uh, we could probably move into the... Uh, the dreaded put-over segment. Uh, Jack, what are you putting over for the people this week? I'm, I'm going to just put over the movie I literally just watched, which is on Netflix right now, and I believe it's staying on Netflix for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's a movie called Accident, uh, directed by Soi Chang. It's a Milky Way production, so it's produced by Johnny Toe, which we, who we've done a few episodes on, and he's come up in this episode too. Um really great movie it's like 85 minutes long so i can sell you you don't it doesn't even take that long to get through but it's like this a thriller about a hitman who specializes in killing people in a way that looks like it's a complete accident but the film then unravels in a very unexpected way where he starts to believe that someone is trying to kill him and make it look like an accident and it's sensibly i mean the the conversation i guess would be probably a good western touch point on it but it's a really great film and a really it's one of those movies that's kind of very smart but kind of almost feels like it's making fun of other very smart thrillers so it's kind of like like you you guys are dumb for like you know you think too much this movie just kind of nails it's what what it's trying to do and kind of subverts our expectations of cause and effect in cinema um, 85 minutes long accident just watch it on netflix it's the easiest thing in the world to watch right now and i think you will enjoy it well we have you jack let's just condense these things together huh uh where are the people going to find you online 
Oh yeah, you could you could find me on Twitter um, there too often, and I'm at Real Jack Eason. That's R E A L J A C K E A S O N. And yeah, shoot me shoot me a message. Let me know what's up. Tell me if you agree vociferously with everything I say, because you should. Uh, anything you might want to tell the good folks about your your Twitter presence uh, at pre- uh, at present, because I think you might have some sort of tie in, perhaps. That's that's true. We do we do have a tie-in. I'm I'm getting ready to put up a some so as I've mentioned, it's come up a few times. These some of these joy films are not easy to find in the West, um, and I'm going to rectify that. I'm going to post some links to some of them. So check out my Twitter feed. Uh, coming days, I'm going to have some of those up. The ones that are hard to find, the ones that you can't just pick up on Blu-ray in the West, uh, there's a lot of them you can't. Uh, you you I'll help you out so you can keep up with us and you can enjoy these movies too. This is a great service you're doing, Jack. Good work. Uh, Jake, what are you putting over this week? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm putting over... It's been out for a while, but uh, I haven't mentioned it yet. So I'm going to put over uh, season two of I Think You Should Leave with uh, Tim Robinson on Netflix. Uh, if you haven't seen season one, please go back and watch that. It's a brilliant, absurdist, surreal comedy where uh, real-life situations <laughs> are taken to the extreme and uh, season two is arguably better, I would say. There's a lot of great sketches. Um, one in particular I enjoy takes place in a courtroom with a very funny looking hat. Um, but yeah, this is it, the episodes are only like 18 minutes long. You could really watch the whole just the whole series as it is in an afternoon. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Um, just yeah watch the first sketch in the first episode if you if you don't know whether or not this will be your cup of tea it's it's awkward but it's perfect um and yeah you can find me on twitter at uh, jake tropila j-a-k-e-t-r-o-p-i-l-a uh i do not have uh, movies to share but uh, i do tweet about twice a day uh hit me up and uh maybe i'll respond to you uh and that's uh it for me i didn't even have to ask how about that you know i've been hearing about yeah. this show I, I i was unaware of it until very recently i heard it mentioned this week i, I gotta get at it Sounds like my sort of thing. Uh, I am putting over. This is another edition of uh, what the hell stupid shit did did Adam find on uh, Tubi this week. Um, There was a brief period of time where where Jeff Daniels seemed to fancy himself like a playwright or something. Uh, He was going the writer-director route after his, his big star career in the 90s started to really flame out. And and this is notable in Michigan for a movie that, that was, I would have thought it was kind of a big deal, but probably people who did not live in Michigan have never even fucking heard of it. It was called Escanaba in the Moonlight. And I kind of thought this was, it's a really goddamn stupid fart joke, like, thing that he wrote and decided to make into a film for some reason. Uh, but I, I thought this was the beginning and the end of the Jeff Daniels as uh you know a writer director producer star uh sort of man about hollywood but apparently not because on tubi right now you could find a little movie that came out the very next year called super sucker in which jeff daniels uh and again wrote directed produced stars and no one else is in this fucking thing except for like the the father from fargo uh, but yeah, he, he plays a door to door vacuum salesman and that's basically the whole plot. He just kind of goes around, uh, in competition with other vacuum salesmen trying to sell vacuums and there's a lot of innuendo and dumb, dumb bullshit jokes. And it is 
Not good. Once again, this is the running theme of my uh, Tubi put over. It's not a good film, but what the fuck? It's very, it's very fascinating. This exists, people. Seek it out because uh, why does it exist? Lord knows. Who is it for? Uh, Jeff Daniels. Uh, but you know, these these are the sort of curios that I, I think are worth seeking out, especially for free on the old Tubi. I, I guess that's about it. Let's let's go into the closer here and say uh, we ask you guys for a couple favors. By the way, you can't find me online. If you do want to contact me, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, we do check that regularly. You can get a hold of me there. Um, beyond that, you could always look in our description. We have a link to iTunes. If you click over there, give us a five-star written review. You got to write something. Don't care what. But give us five stars, write anything. Uh, that really helps visibility. It makes uh, iTunes recognize us as somewhat legitimate. Uh, whether we are or aren't, that's up for debate. But uh, if, you, if you're on our side, just, you know, take 30 seconds, click over there, type a sentence, give us five stars. And we also have in that description a link to Patreon. We are a lately supported Patreon podcast. It, you know, it is... Uh, helpful to us it just it gives us a little bit of a buffer for hosting fees none of this stuff is free uh it lets us upgrade equipment when we need to and uh, keeps the ship running uh if you donate at any level uh and live in the continental united states steve is sending out dvds uh from his personal collection he'll mail those to you any subscribers so that that's a nice bonus and uh, we also have a ton of old written content this used to be a blog once upon a time and we've got years of, of old content uh, on our patreon uh, for subscribers and you know we occasionally work on new podcast projects that are patreon exclusive as well so yeah if you donate a little bit more you can get mentioned on the podcast like uh, dustin like ryan like paula if you donate a little bit more, you can even tell us what the hell to do. Uh, you know, up to you. But uh, we appreciate any and all support. I think that's about it, folks. Uh, last word, as per always, belongs to Jake. Why would you kill yourself, 